Marcy Sklove, welcome to Going Deeper. This is part two of an interview with Mehlika Samdani, who is the founder and executive director of Critical Connections. And uh, we're going to, so welcome back. Thank you so much. <laughs> we're sitting here. That's just <laughs> kind of it's great nice. to be here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I love having this opportunity to ask you just if you want to talk a little bit about your faith and about your own experience being a Muslim woman, uh, living here, living in Pakistan, you know, just what has been your experience? Sure. Well, um, you know, it's off, this is a very personal question in, in, in lots of different ways. So I'm not used to talking about it. So just bear with me. In well, terms of... I'm very grateful that you're <laughs> willing to talk oh, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, yeah. that's no problem at all. It's just that um, faith has been an integral part of who I am. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being a Muslim has informed my worldview. Um, and has from the very beginning. And I don't know how you get that, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, we didn't come, my parents were very sort of um, devout Muslims, but it wasn't, uh, I mean, they weren't very conservative in the way that, you know, most, a lot of observant Muslims would practice mm -hmm. uh, Islam. And so it was never something that was imposed in our household. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something, but it's still something, the stories that we grew up with, the stories from the Quran, the stories from the Prophet's own life mm -hmm. and his traditions. That's something that a lot of Muslim children grow up with. Um, and so I, you know, it's really informed my worldview. It's mm -hmm. informed the way I interact with people of different communities, mm -hmm. people of my own faith, it um, defines the way I see myself as a mother, mm. as, um, as a woman, as how I engage with uh, my elders, my parents. Mm -hmm. So everything is really just shaped by, uh, by my faith. And I feel that, um, and as a Muslim woman, I feel especially empowered. Mm. And wow. I, being a Muslim woman, and, um, and I think that, and for that I give a lot of credit to my father hmm. who, um, was um, uh, of a legal background, but you know he knew a lot about Islamic jurisprudence, yeah. and um, and so you know uh, we were four daughters, and I also have a younger brother, but um, you know he really raised us sort of steeped in um, the Islamic jurisprudential tradition. Right. And he was a high judge. He was a high court judge. High court judge. He was a high yeah. court judge, but also very scholarly in his mm -hmm. own way. Um, and so how I see myself is a, as a Muslim woman. Um, you know, is really sort of defined by how he sort of raised us in terms of our rights as Muslim women. Mm -hmm. So I go about the world, you know, um, conducting myself um, in 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 what is supposed to be. Um, um, uh, in the framework that you know Islam has provided in terms yeah. of my rights as a Muslim woman, mm -hmm. um, in terms of my you know just as an example, for instance, um, you know I grew up with this notion that as a Muslim woman I only have financial rights. I have no financial obligations. Okay. So it doesn't matter how much I earn, how much money I make, nobody has right 
over that money. Oh, I see. It's it only belongs to me. My children don't have have any right over it. My okay. husband doesn't have any right over it. My um, so if we have a mortgage to pay, that's entirely my husband's responsibility. Oh, wow. If I'm feeling particularly generous, <laughs> I might you know I might give of that, mm -hmm. but I am in absolutely no under no obligation, and um, and so that's something that's very empowering to me. Mm -hmm. And so um, you know that's something that I. Uh, grew up with. The other thing is, in terms of marriages, you know, people yeah. think about a lot about, um, you know, marriages in the Muslim world, and we hear a lot about honor killings and things like that. Yeah. Um, but again, growing up in the tradition of Islam, you know, uh, one honor killings is completely antithetical to what it's supposed to be, and exactly. we can talk about that later. Um, but just the, the the marriage contract that the husband and wife sign at the time of their marriage mm -hmm. is sort of it's supposed to empower both parties yeah. and a muslim woman can write anything in that contract she can have you know she can have her husband sign off on i will not cook a day in my life <laughs> i will not or i will be paid for looking after your children oh my gosh everything can be written out you can make yeah. all kinds of provisions within that contract i will need to be paid a sum of money and that's actually that's uh, an essential part of the contract in case of a divorce mm. in case of a divorce there is um, uh, an amount of um, uh, this uh, money or cash or mm -hmm. wealth that is automatically transferred so c divorce is allowed oh absolutely in, okay. absolutely mm -hmm. and a woman but for but within the Islamic tradition a woman has to take her husband to court mm-hmm she has it has to be arbitrated by a judge it is absolutely allowed uh, you know and so it has to be, be and the reason it has to be sort of arbitrated by a judge is because if there is a divorce mm -hmm. there is a certain amount of financial compensation that is owed to the woman Oh gosh! Automatically, Amazing. and so and if that and because I mean, so she has to like you know prove. But again, grounds for divorce are myriad. I mean, if um, if uh, you know even sexual gratification, if that is something, even that a lack wow. of that is grounds for divorce. Wow! And so I mean, anything is grounds for divorce. Yeah. And if a woman wants out, is absolutely. I mean, if and it's mediated by an outside party. How how common is it that women take advantage of these rights or know about and, and Well, I think that's really critical, Marcy, because, um, you know, a lot of women in Pakistan, where I grew up, did not know about this. Mm -hmm. And they don't know about their own rights within an Islamic framework. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and just through my own personal experience, I wish there were more fathers like my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish there were more people who were willing to engage in that kind of research on their own to know that yeah. those and and if and if religion is taught properly, and especially Islam, I feel like especially in countries like Pakistan, if it's taught properly, uh, you know, women will be even more empowered. Sure. Um, but there is such a and and cultural norms and patriarchy, it takes over in such debilitating ways yeah. um, that it completely undermines mm -hmm. what the tradition says. A lot yeah. of my own friends who are highly educated, they're doctors, they're running companies, even they don't know about what their rights wow. within Islam is. There's a communication problem. <laughs> There's a huge communication <laughs> problem. I think Islam generally has a PR problem, uh -huh. but, uh, but also 
also this communication problem yeah, yeah. and you know in terms of inheritance and what you know this was something that was being done 1400 years ago wow. and in many ways I feel like you know sort of growing up with the stories of the Prophet Muhammad um, you know he uh, was a, a revolutionary when it came to gender dynamics hmm. in in, in, in you know, 7th century Arabia, wow. completely revolutionized them. This is a time when young, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, baby girls were being buried alive. Oh. At the time of his, you know, uh, you know, wow. prophethood, that is the time and that is how women were treated. They were treated as property, they were buried alive. And he completely turned that on its head, got a lot of resistance from his own community yeah. where the men were up in arms saying this is this how can women inherit property they're the subsar property right. and yet when you see when you look around the muslim world and it's different in different countries of course uh, but you see that a lot of that is lost <laughs> you know in terms of the some right. of the, um, uh, the the way tradition is practiced and um, and I and I, and, I th and I think a lot of it has to do this sort of stagnation of Islamic jurisprudence uh, mm -hmm. prudence has a lot to do with colonization oh interesting and the way you know sort of um, colonial powers sort of undermined this very rich tradition yeah um, and you know there were places of learning where these things were developed and talked about and debated um, just you know imagine a university right sure. uh, where all of these things are happening but um, after colonization in a lot of these countries countries, money and funding and all of that was taken away. Right. Um, and there was, um, so that sort of stagnated and there were these very patriarchal notions of yeah, what yeah. a woman's place in society is and should be was put in place. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Western perception yes. is also that women in Islam do not have so much power. Absolutely. So it's coming from you know, coming from without, and it sounds like it's also coming from within that that women aren't really educated about their their own Absolutely, power. absolutely. Yeah. And I feel, and there's this um, anthropologist Akbar Ahmed, and his theory is that you know when colonization happened, Muslim men lost a lot of power, of course, uh -huh. in society, oh. and one way of sort of reasserting that power yeah. was within their homes, mm -hmm. and that was what led to some of the more you know patriarchal notions or manifestations sure. of a woman's role in society. Yeah. That's when that happened, um, and uh, but the sad thing is that you know. The, I feel like there can be more done within the Muslim world sure. in terms of the scholarly tradition to come up with more progressive interpretations, yeah. and which are yeah. more relevant to and current communicating times. that out more. Absolutely. Fully. So, how does the hijab fit into all of this in terms of? Uh, how it's worn, how is it used? Sure. So the hijab is, um, uh, you know, it, it, is, uh, it has different words, right? So uh, what we mean by the hijab in the contemporary sense is, you know, when women wear the scarf and sort of cover their head mm -hmm. and, make, um, and cover their hair and, um, and also arms and legs. Um, and this is something, this is a phenomenon. There is a, there are verses in the Quran mm -hmm. that talk about the hijab, um, but people have interpreted them very differently in various yeah. times. Um, you know, I grew up in Pakistan and um, in my college, you know, I went to college, mm -hmm. an all-girls college in, um, for my bachelor's there, and there were maybe three girls who wore the hijab. Wow. 
among maybe 800, 1,000 women, only three. And one of them was our head girl, and she wore the hijab, and she was an American Pakistani. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so she, and this is in the early 90s, okay. and she uh, grew up in America and wore the hijab here yeah. and had moved back to Pakistan. And she was like one of the most active, dynamic, amazing, very well-spoken people that I knew, but she wore the hijab. Okay. So it was not something that was done in generally. Yeah. And, and it was a, a very small minority mm -hmm. of women who wore uh, the hijab. Um, I have cousins, um, you know, who, so we're four daughters who grew up in Pakistan, nobody wears the hijab. Uh, we have cousins in Canada who, um, you know, uh, grew, born, were born in Canada, raised in Canada. Their mother never wore the hijab. She moved from Pakistan to Canada, never wore the hijab. When her daughters grew up, the second one started wearing the hijab. Hmm. And then her sister started wearing hijab. And then the mother started wearing the hijab. And since they're your cousins, do you have a sense of what prompted them to make that change? Well, I think they went to Sunday school very regularly. And I think they were, you know, sort of influenced by people there who there, they thought that, you know, that is the right interpretation mm -hmm. and that is what they should do as Muslim women. And I absolutely respect and cherish that interpretation sure. for them. Sure. Um, and so, and people wear it for such a variety of different mm -hmm. reasons, women wear it. And this is a phenomenon that has become much more prevalent over the past 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I think it's more some, and I don't want to speak to speak for all women, because right. again, one, right. I don't wear the hijab, and you know, for women who do, but I've, you know, some do it out of a sense of piety because they feel like that is how a Muslim woman should dress. Mm -hmm. Others do it because of a sense of identity. They want to be known as yeah. a Muslim woman, um, and that's something that I quite envy because I also want to be known as a of Muslim course. woman. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when people see me, they won't recognize me as such. So some people do it for that, and some people do it for political reasons mm -hmm. to make a statement that this is who we are. And this is as, you know, this is our uh, way of expressing who we are yeah. and, our, and our identity, and especially in the current climate. Um, and so people do it out of, you know, for a range yeah. of different reasons. Yeah. Um, and personally, I, I um, sort of, I love all of those reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you right. know, you can wear You don't for, judge any of them. Absolutely, yeah. and I want everybody to have that space to decide sure. for themselves yeah. what kind of, um, you know, how they want to cover themselves mm -hmm. or not cover themselves, that's something. But you know, what's interesting is when I see Western women mm -hmm. talk about the hijab as, if, as being a tool of oppression and, yeah. you know, being very oppressive. Um, and it makes me wonder, because I wonder how much it's about them. Because, um, and not to say that Western women are oppressed, but all societies regulate sure. what women wear. Sure. And all societies regulate what women can do. Right. And they do it in their own. I mean, we don't have women who can walk around naked here in right. America. Right. Right. But why? Well, this is not an Islamic Republic. Yeah. This is a secular country. Why should, uh, why should anybody tell them how to dress? Yeah. But they do, I mean, but there are constraints, right, right. there are social constraints to how people, um, you know, uh, operate. And sometimes the ways women dress have the opposite effect. You know, that they're intentionally dressing in a style that has been imposed on them Absolutely. For other purposes. Abs absolutely. For, exploit for Ex exploitation. exploitation, exactly. Yeah, not that they themselves, you know, are doing that um, out of, their own sense of, you know, uh, exploiting themselves. Sells, they don't right. understand absolutely. that piece of it, maybe. Right, 
Right, right. So there are different pressures that we're all right. subjected to. Well, it's also, you're reminding me, recently I was having this conversation, you know, the Orthodox Jewish women yes. of this generation, more so I think than their parents or grandparents, yes. are becoming more and more conservative sure. in their dress and in right. the way they present themselves. Yes. And in many cultures, it really is about the women somehow protecting, hiding their hair. Yes. Because like in the, for the Orthodox Jewish women, it's about the wigs. Right, sure. And in European, Poland, you know, Christian too, not Jewish, but the whole sense of the babushka. Yes, You know, yes. the scarf that would be worn. Nuns. And Ca nuns, Catholic, Catholic nuns. Absolutely. But we never have people talking about, you know, why that is. Are nuns oppressed? Are nuns, you know, somehow backward? Or are they sort of, you know, what are they subjecting themselves to? For a lot of women, I feel like it's also very liberating. Mm -hmm. Right. To dress exactly how you want right. to dress. And being conservative for ultra-Orthodox Jewish women, if, right. they, if they feel like their proximity to God is in some ways dependent to them wearing a wig, if that's how they interpret religion, then more power yeah, to them. Exactly. Who are we to judge whether that I mean, they are, I mean, isn't it better to be subservient, especially if you're a believing person, to be subservient to God than to be subservient to men? You know, so I mean, it depends on how they're perceiving it. Right. It's also, there, there's a way of, of there being a sense of intimate connection with God. Right. That it's not subservient necessarily. Right, or some kind but of that connection. There's some, yes. there's some way that I am going to just have this part of my myself, Absolutely. my beauty or whatever, right, right. just be between right. me and the divine. And I think the principle here is agency. Mm -hmm. The principle here is the freedom to choose and choice. And if people, whether they're ultra-Orthodox women or Catholic nuns or Muslim women who choose to cover, if they feel, I mean, they should have the right. Sure. But when we say, oh, well, in Iran, you have to cover. Right. Well, I can very well say that, yes, in America, you have to cover. It's, it varies in degrees. Yeah. Okay. You have to cover. Sure. Right? It's, it's, it's our perception of how we view the other but not our own selves. Right, right, and I right. sometimes feel that, you know, sort of women's rights organizations here, they're very quick to talk about the burqas in Afghanistan mm -hmm. or the chadars in the Northwest Frontier Province or wherever, but, you know, in terms of their own rights, I mean, just the fact that women are not given equal pay right. is mind-boggling mm -hmm. to somebody who's an outsider like myself who grew up in another culture but came here and knew about, oh, you know, women are completely equal. Um, you know, how does that work? It doesn't quite right. make sense. Women having to uh, contribute to the household income, to me, that's very oppressive uh -huh. as well. As a Muslim woman, I find that a little bit oppressive. Right. You know, why should anybody, I mean, sure. I grew up with this notion of why should anybody have access to my money? It's mine, wow. and I decide what I want to do with yeah. it. So, I mean, it's all cultural. I mean, there's relativity, so there's so much, um, yeah. you know, I feel like we all, and, and not to say that there's nothing wrong in terms of how 
some women are treated in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. You know, we have to look at things like honor killings. Um, you know, I was looking at the numbers here. That Speak about that a little bit. Yes. So, I mean, honor killings, again, just so antithetical to this mm -hmm. sort of principle of empowerment and choice when it comes to marriage. Um, you know, it's... Um, uh, in Islam, there's no compulsion in religion and there's no compulsion in marriage. That's another huge thing. Mm. And, you know, you might have arranged marriages, you might have, you know, whatever marriages, um, uh, but there is supposed to be Islamically, nobody can tell a woman who to marry. Wow. Nobody, and I'll give you a quick anecdote about my sister. Um, I don't know how she'll uh, uh, <laughs> think about this, but you know, she, my eldest sister, grew up in Pakistan, was in college, and she was going to have an arranged, uh, somebody sort of, you know, um, identified somebody here in the US who would be a good match mm -hmm. for her. My father came to the US, he was <laughs> coming here for a conference, so he said, well, why don't I meet that gentleman? And before doing that, he asked my sister, who was studying in another town in Pakistan, she was doing her master's, and he said, you know, why don't you come along and we'll go and meet this guy and see if you like him, because yeah. I'm going anyway. And she said, you know, I can't be bothered. I'm in the middle of my semester, you go check him out if you think he's good. Fine, I'll go ahead with it. I think wow. she's crazy. I think she was crazy to do that, but that's what happened. Yeah. So my dad, you know, kept insisting. She said, "No way, I'm not leaving my, you know, school right now. I, you just go." He went. He met our um, my now brother-in-law, um, and um, and he came all the way to Pakistan to have that wedding. They met two days before the actual wedding. Yeah. But even at that time when they were going for their date to actually meet each other for lunch, my <laughs> sister knew that if at that point she decides that she does not want to marry she him, could call it off. she could call it off. Everybody had been invited. Everything had been paid for. But my parents had told her that that is your right. Wow. Even at the time of the signing of the contract, if you feel. So that is what it, how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And how it's done, that's not how it's sure. always done. Um, and so honor killings, just sort of imposing your will on your children in terms of who they should marry is just. So what's the killing part? I don't actually know what it. Oh, so the killing part is like, you know, <laughs> a, a woman, and I actually know of people who've, you know, endured that, um, uh, a, a woman deciding, well, I don't want to get married to this person who my parents have arranged for mm -hmm. me to marry, I'm actually going to run off with somebody else right. or go and marry somebody else of my own volition. And then these parents or other family members finding the couple okay. and then killing them both. Wow. Either killing her just family their, members, her own family members, Wow. killing um, their, uh, yeah. their daughter. And so it's, it's just the most atrocious, awful brutality, you know, that mm -hmm. you can imagine. Um, around the world, every year, there are an average of about 5,000 honor killings. Wow. About 5,000 that happen. Um, uh, and, I, and, and just in Pakistan alone, about 1,000. Wow. which is just mind-blowing. And I, there are women's rights organizations in Pakistan who do amazing work to raise awareness mm -hmm. on these issues and, you know, give refuge to these women and, you know, provide sort of um, legal services and all of those things. Um, and I was looking at and so it absolutely has to be, you know, addressed. It's a sure. terrible issue. It's awful. It has to be addressed. But then I was also looking at domestic violence issues here in America right. and uh, date rape issues here. I mean, every six minutes, and you know, a, a woman is raped. Um, domestic violence, there are at least uh, a, a thousand cases of uh, women dying 
uh, here in America oh, because of domestic right. violence. You so, are right. So honor killings absolutely atrocious, mm -hmm. but domestic violence absolutely and the number of lives absolutely atrocious. Yeah. The number of lives that it takes every year. So again, I feel like we're always very quick to judge them. to look and mm -hmm. we should judge that as something absolutely horrendous mm -hmm. but then we should also be able to keep everything in perspective and sure. say well yes we also have our similar issues yeah wow and so i mean i think that so those are the kinds of things that we try and raise you know in our events like sort of just sort of turning the mirror on ourselves getting and saying, back to critical connections <laughs> <laughs> yes you know why why do we um is it really about them or is it really right. about the way we're looking at them and what what is it about our own selves that we're trying to sort of yeah. overlook here yeah. so uh, those are some of the questions that we wonderful um, we have just about four minutes left yes. but i wanted to touch on this i know that um some of the events you've been doing are looking outside of the the one big topic of Muslim and yes. non-Muslim uh, relationships, but also LGBT yes. and Jewish and um, other groups that are being targeted, Absolutely. transgender, Absolutely. and uh, and I just wanted to ask because I think that people who are going to watch this might be saying to themselves. I want to have that kind of a conversation with someone. Sure. I want to meet and become friends with someone who's so different than me or who's Muslim and I've heard these terrible things about Muslims or something. Sure. So what, what is some advice, you know, quickly, but what might you offer as a suggestion for those of us who want to cross the divide? And how in the valley can we move forward in that? Sure. Well, I mean, again, I felt that, you know, in the wake of the election, there was so much um, sort of apprehension and, you know, anxiety that people were experiencing. But again, there was so much mobilization in mm. terms of, Absolutely. you know, how can we help and what can we do? And even in terms of attendance at Critical Connections events, you know, before the election, you know, we would have a good turnout, but maybe about 50, 60 people. Yeah. And now we have upwards of 100 people. Sure. You know, there's so much interest. Um, and I feel like there's so many different groups if I can sort of start thinking about, you know, even there's the Arise for Social Justice, there's mm. um, there's uh, the Pioneer Valley Workers Group, there's there's just so many, there's 413 Staying Connected mm. for Action. I mean, there's so many different political activists that are now out there and sort of advocating and yeah. doing a lot of these awareness raising issues, but also groups like, which are not about, you know, sort of politics, which mm. is just sort of about forming those uh, personal connections. Yeah. Um, for instance, we just launched the Western Massachusetts chapter of the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, yeah. which is, you know, Muslim and Jewish women coming together and just sort of connecting with one another and talking about issues. Um, and so, you know, th those are the kinds of things that people could be doing. Um, we would love for people to come to Critical Connections events mm -hmm. because there also you get to meet a, a wide variety of sort of folks yeah. and stuff. In I'd also like to just make a little plug. You have a really great website. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and there's a lot to look at there. There's the blogs and the other articles people have written about events outside of the yes, valley. absolutely. I would uh, recommend that as another, you know, access into how to 
plug in. Yes, in well, these thank ways. you so much. And absolutely, I mean, please write to us, you know, mm. uh, find us at, uh, you know, criticalconnections.org. Also, find us on Facebook. Um, mm. My email is there. I would love to connect. Um, yeah. You know, there's so many amazing people often think that there aren't too, that there aren't, you know, very many Muslims in the area doing a lot of things, but there's the Islamic Society of Western Massachusetts. Right. They have wonderful interfaith programs that yeah. are uh, going on. Um, there are lots of things, um, you know, so please connect with them. There are other area mosques that I could also connect mm -hmm. you with. Um, there's a lovely Hampshire mosque. Uh, yes. The president of Hampshire mosque is a woman, Naz Muhammad. Good friend of mine. She does amazing yeah. work. And, you know, everybody is really willing. Um, and I would, I mean, use this time to also just thank everyone for just mm -hmm. the outpouring of love and support and solidarity that we've experienced, yeah. you know, since the election, during the election cycle, mm -hmm. people have just been amazing. I know that I have a lot of family and friends in Pakistan who are very worried about sure. us being Muslims here in the US. And, you know, I just tell them that we are so blessed mm -hmm. to be a part of this amazing community where, yes, there is a lot of anger and there is some hostility, but there's overwhelming, yeah. overwhelming support. Um, and for that reason, I also like to tell my fellow Muslims here mm -hmm. that, you know, all of these people who've come out in support of us, yeah. they don't necessarily, you know, believe in Islam right. or they or agree with all Islamic principles. They're here to support our civil rights right. and because they, you know, are connected to us as human beings. Wonderful. And so in that same vein, it is our obligation as Muslims to speak out against injustice when mm. the targets are um, LGBTQ members yeah. or the Jewish community or the African-American community, right. the immigrant community, whoever it is, Again, as Muslims, you know, we yeah. have an obligation by our faith to speak out against tyranny yeah. and injustice. And so we need to stand in solidarity mm. with our trans brothers and sisters, right. our, um, you know, uh, the LGBTQ community, all of these different vulnerable communities at this time. Yeah. Wow, you are a wonderful model <laughs> because that's sort of how you're living, is Thank you reaching so much, out to others and being open to connecting even with those who are the ones who might in this moment be hating you, you know? <laughs> well, we have but a, then I transforming have, that into something Well, else. I have a lot of role models in the larger community. I mean, amazing yeah. people like Rabbi Justin David, yeah. you know, who sort of got arrested for standing in solidarity with the Muslim community against the Muslim ban, and so many others yeah. who've just, you know, are amazing sort of embodiments of social justice. Right. So there's positive stuff coming out of this yes. difficult time. And I'm so, so glad to spend this time with you. Thank you so much thank for having you. me. It was thank so you enjoyable. Thank you very much. I want to thank everyone for uh, viewing this show and showing me and the show our, your support. And also, please remember that Amherst Media is a wonderful resource that we have here in Amherst. And they need our support as well. Um, my other shows, all of my shows are available at marcysclove.com, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.